If you brought your Bibles with you today, uh, open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you didn't, it's in your bulletin, the text we'll be looking at in a moment, or it's on page 1014 of your uh, blue Bibles that are in front of you. We are on Sermon 3 from this great letter, and we're early enough that I can recap the other two sermons very briefly. In the first sermon, at the beginning of this letter, we saw that we as the people of God, wherever we may find ourselves in this world, even if it happens to be the place where we were born and raised, we are in fact exiles in this world. We don't quite fit in with this world anymore. That is because, but also in addition to that, we're not just exiles. We are, in fact, as we read, we're elect exiles. God has seen fit to call us out of the world unto himself, and as elect exiles, we are recipients of the grace and peace of the triune God that comes to us. That's sermon number one, verses one and two. Sermon number two focused on verses three to five, and we saw that this work that God has done in electing us, in choosing us, has in fact brought us into the family, the household of God. And while the passage says that we have been born again into this family, we could, just like we said a few moments ago, also picture that as being adopted into this family and household of God. So we've come out of the world and into this family and household of God into which we have been born again. And as a result of that participation in that family, we have a living hope, we have an imperishable inheritance, and we have salvation, all of which is kept in heaven. It's guarded by God for us, and not only that, but we and our faith are also guarded by God until that day, until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we are a people who, having received that, are a people who bless God, who praise God, who rejoice God, both now and in the future as well for this great salvation that he has given to us. Let me pick up the reading now. And I read this, I, I dipped into this verse intentionally last week, but we'll pick it up and focus on 6 through 9 this week. This is the Word of God. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Great God in heaven, we thank you for this word that you've preserved for us, that you have given to us as your people. Lord, we haven't seen you, but by your grace, we love you. We haven't seen you and we don't see you now, but by your grace, we believe in you. And we pray that you would help us to understand and receive that which you have preserved and given to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a quote to begin with this morning. With verse 6, Peter shifts the focus 
from the certainties of future end time or eschatological glory to the more dismal realities of the present. Okay, so this, this is the quote. With verse six, Peter shifts the focus from the certainties of future end time glory to the more dismal realities of the present. That is how one writer puts it, and I like the word or the use of the word dismal because it's so poignant, it's so dramatic, and as a word in and of itself, it really seems to be so hopeless. Now, I eased for us the transition between these two sections by including last week verse 6 in how I was preaching and how I was reading so that we would kind of understand where Peter is going with this. But as we saw last week, verse 6 provides this kind of sweeping statement when Peter says, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, that statement, uh, the, the dismal realities of the present, the various trials that you've been undergoing, appreciates the fact that these trials, these dismal realities, uh, exist on something of a spectrum. At this point, when the letter of 1 Peter is written, the state-sponsored persecution of Christians hadn't come into full gear yet. But the seeds of it were there. And certainly, Christians in various places were experiencing episodes of suffering and of persecution for their faith. And so Peter is addressing that, but he's also saying to them, listen, there are dark and ominous and thickening clouds on the horizon that are approaching. Peter is writing to them not to say, listen, those clouds aren't going to form into anything, don't worry about it, no storm is coming, it's going to pass over and nothing's going to happen with that. Peter sees them coming and he's writing to prepare people, to equip people, the church, for how you endure and how you live well in the midst of that kind of suffering. Storms are coming, and uh, in the present case, people are suffering. And, and that brings with it some pretty natural questions for them, for all of us, for people all throughout history. And, and for Peter, it's how do you process the kind of colliding realities and the colliding things that we see in a text like this? How do you process grief, and joy, trials, and hope, and elect, and exiles. And not only, not only how do you process the, the polarity between those things, but how do you live in it? How are you supposed to feel in the midst of, the wor of a world where those things are going back and forth? And how are you supposed to react in a world like that when they keep slamming into each other? I think we can say that the question of suffering that exists in this world, of trials and testings that exist in this world, is an Ecclesiastes-like question. It's an Ecclesiastes-like dilemma, and you're asking something that is deep and profoundly human. And what I hope that we'll see, I'll come back to Ecclesiastes right at the end of this sermon, 
But what I hope that we'll see, for those of you who are familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes and now with 1 Peter as well, that there's a tremendous advance in the answer to some fundamental questions as we come into the book of 1 Peter and into this period of God's history with his people. Now, let me go back to the quote that I started with uh, just a few moments ago. The quote noted that there's a significant shift that has taken place, a shift of focus that has taken place between verses 3 and 5 and then verses 6 through 9 that I have read for us. And on the one hand, that's fair enough to say. I mean, I too, as I've looked at this, I've divided it up into two sermons. Uh, so we looked at part of it last week, and we'll look at the other part of it this week. But I tried to bridge by reading verse 6 last week, and I think it would be a mistake for us if we saw Peter talking about hope and inheritance and salvation last week, and then we saw him changing subjects, if you will, and say, okay, I've, I've dealt with that, and now I'm going to talk about trials, and I'm going to talk about sufferings and griefs that you have endured as Christians. And, and so what I'd like us to see is that instead of really turning to a different topic, I think the better way to see what Peter is doing here is Peter is actually applying what he's just said about the hope, about the inheritance, about the salvation to that which we actually face day to day, grief and various kinds of trial. Peter's applying hope to our present realities. Now, let me say this a different way. Let's say you were here last week and you were encouraged last week. You were encouraged when we read the Word of God and we read about the hope of being born again into this family and this household of God. You were encouraged about the living hope that exists as a result of that. You were encouraged about the idea of an imperishable inheritance that is guarded for us and about the salvation that is to come. You were encouraged by all of that. You got home and you said, that's really nice. And maybe you even spoke about it to one another as you got home and you, you were encouraged by it. But then you sat it on the shelf and you said, but here's the deal. The deal is I've got real problems in my life. I've got real issues that are going on in my life. And that hope for something that's off in the future is really nice. But what I really need is a way to deal with the problems that I've got right now in my job, in my school, in my family, in my relationships with others. I've got real issues that are in front of me. The temptation, in other words, is to let the things that are present realities for us right now, and we've all got them, whatever they are, but to let that now become that which is our focus in life, that which is the biggest thing to us in our lives, to allow the pain and the trials to be, in fact, determinative. Determinative of our disposition, determinative of our view of the world, of the way we kind of look at life, of our actions and reactions, determinative of our mood. What kind of mood am I in? Determined by what kind of particular trial or issue is in front of me. Our temptation is to be consumed by various trials, 
various situations as if, as if they are the big sphere of life. This is, this is real life, pastor. You're talking about hope. And hope is just this little thing that I can see out on the horizon and it is so far away from me that it seems like just a little dot that's far out there. But really, this is what I'm dealing with. And what God has to say to that, to us, is, no, 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 you, you need to stop and you need to change the way that you are thinking because, in fact, hope and glory and inheritance and in Christ those, those, that is the great sphere. And these present things you're dealing with, the present pains, the present trials, the present griefs, those things, those things are just for a little while. They're just this. They're, they're just a little while that you're going to be dealing with those things. Or uh, to bring Paul into Peter here. The weight of glory surpasses infinitely, infinitely, the weight of the dismalities of the present. Dismalities, that's my word of the week. I thought I invented it. When I, I was trying to figure out a way to put dismal and realities into one word, I went dismalities, and I thought, that's great, I'm going to invent the word, and I looked it up, and it exists. It's a real word. The dismalities of the present. And so Peter writes in verse 6, and, and he begins to address this situation. Now I just want to flow through this text. In this you rejoice. Well, in what? In what do you rejoice? You rejoice in everything he's just said, right? And all of that hope and all of that inheritance and all of that salvation. In everything that he's just said, in this you rejoice. But Peter is not saying or he's not trying in any way, to then practice some kind of escapism and say, and that's all there is. There's nothing really bad that's happening. Everything is good. Just close your eyes to everything else because you're rejoicing in that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't deny the pain, the reality of the suffering, the reality of the griefs. He acknowledges it, and he interprets the suffering. He helps us to get away to handle and understand the suffering and the trials that we undergo in this life. Now, just to be clear, I don't have to say everything in this sermon because he addresses it a number of times throughout this text. So, he will come back to this very same theme in various parts of the letter. But for here, for here, he, he addresses the people of God by saying that these trials that you're undergoing, this experience of grief that you are having right now, far from being meaningless, random intrusions, are in fact part of the necessary preparation in your life for the inheritance that you are going to receive. In other words, in these trials, in the things that you are undergoing, your faith muscle is being strengthened. Your faith muscle is being proven. Or using the analogy that is provided here, the gold analogy that Peter has right here. Your faith is being smelted, it's being refined, it's being purified. And that hurts in the present. 
But what Peter says is what's going on will result, and here again Peter turns into the end times that's going to result, Peter says in verse 7, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, typically when we hear those words, praise and glory and honor, we associate them with the praise and the glory and the honor that belongs to God. But here what Peter is indicating is something that we're going to partake of, to participate in. The endurance of your faith through the trials that you experience right now is going to result in your praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The crown being given to you. Now, it's the glory and honor of Christ. We may take that crown off of our head and throw it at his feet. But nevertheless, that's the idea here, that this is going to result in that coming to you. Through these growing pains of trials, you are going to receive those things. And so, Peter, in order to explain the present trials, says to them, listen, presently, right now, you are undergoing this circumstance, this difficulty, and presently, what it is doing is it is strengthening your faith. Right now, it is strengthening your faith, and then in the future, it's going to do something as well. It's going to yield glory and honor and praise. Now, in verse 8, he pivots back to the present. Okay, he just went to the future, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, he pivots back to the present, and he says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. One can imagine, I think, that for a man like Peter, who spent so much time with our Lord Jesus Christ, who was personally, physically with Jesus for so many years, one can imagine that it still causes him incredible wonder and amazement and joy to see people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who didn't have the same privilege that he had. Now, he knows why that is. He knows why it is. It's because the Spirit of God has been poured out upon the people of God all around the world so that they can now embrace Christ by faith. But nevertheless, I think for him, it is still a never-ending, ceaseless beauty that he can see. But it's also something else. And, and Peter is pointing out that it's something else, both for them and for Peter as well. And that is, when you believe, when you love Jesus, whom you have never seen, never met in person, it is evidentiary. It's proof. It's, it's a demonstration of the fact that the Spirit of God is uniting us now to the resurrection life of Jesus. That's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, listen, in your life, examine your life. You believe in something, someone, you would never have believed in on your own. You love someone you've never met. You have desires. We were talking about these yesterday with the men's study. We have desires in our hearts for that which is good that we know aren't there because of ourselves. And Peter says, look at those things because those things are evidence of the fact that God is at work in your life, that God is doing something with these trials and with these tribulations 
right now. Something is being worked in you, not just for the future, but right now in your life. Now, without a doubt, more is coming, but without a doubt, much is at hand. Jesus is a living Savior. A brother out there reminded me of that just a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is a living Savior. Jesus is dwelling with his church and with his people now, and as a result, we are alive as well. This is the idea, if you want, if you want this in catechetical and catechism language, it's what we said just a little bit earlier. What are the benefits which, in this life, in this life, do flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? I'm away from the pulpit now to test my whether or not I can actually remember this catechism question or not. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. This is what Peter is saying. You've got these things right now. You've got them right now as a result of these trials. That's what the trials are doing in your life. And the fact that they're doing that are clear evidence of the fact that God's at work in your life, that the Spirit of God is dwelling within you. The great reality is that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the age to come, the age of glory, the age of life abundant has broken into the present age in you. This is what we said last week. The reason you don't fit in this world, the reason you feel out of place in this world is because eternal life, eternal glory has come down into you. You're the first fruits of it. Your body hasn't yet experienced that. It is still subject to decay. The world around us is still subject to decay. We still see sin in our members. We still see sin in the world that is around us. But nevertheless, the end times have broken through, and in particular, they've broken through into your heart. The seed of life, of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ has been implanted into us as the people of God. The hope, out here, of eternal glory, the hope of glory is now, is now at work in the people of God. With the result that, verse 9, you go back to the future. Verse 9 takes us back to the future. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You will receive the outcome. You will obtain the outcome, the end. Uh, this is a Greek word that some of you know, only reason I'll mention it, tell us. You'll get it. You'll get the goal. You'll get the objective. Christian life, the Christian worldview, the Christian life is not that the earth just continues to spin in circles and life is just one great big circle that takes place. There's a lot of cyclical things, but they are heading towards an end, a particular end. And your life is headed towards a particular end. You will obtain the end, the salvation of your souls, and souls here being inclusive of all, all of the promises that we have already spoken, all of the promises which are ours in this life, and then all which will be ours in the life to come. 
made perfect in holiness, immediately pass into glory, openly acknowledged and acquitted, and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. That's how you make sense of the dismalities of the present. In Ecclesiastes, the writer struggled with these dismalities. We'll call them, he'll call them vanity, right? So in Ecclesiastes, the question is posed whether or not in this world of tears there's anything to be gained. Do you get anything out of it? After all of the suffering, after all of the trials, after all of your efforts, do you get anything out of it? Right? That's the question that it opens up. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's the deep question. What do you get out of it? You're going to work, you're going to suffer, you're going to be grieved by various trials. What do you get out of it at the end of the day? Now, the writer of Ecclesiastes is, for the sake of illustrating the pain of it, saying, consider it on, this, on the plane of this life. Consider whether or not when you add up everything in this life, you get something out of it. And of course, the answer in Ecclesiastes is, nope, you don't. You don't. You end with death. Death gets the last word until it comes to the end. And it says, the end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments, which is good, which is good and right. But Peter is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a witness not only to the life of Jesus Christ, but to the death of Jesus Christ and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is a recipient at Pentecost of the power of the Holy Spirit poured out upon the church. And Peter has an answer to this question as well. He answers it more fully. There is, as Peter says, an assured outcome, an assured gain for all of your present toil you will receive by faith the salvation of your souls. That's how you make sense of the sufferings and the trials and the griefs. The outcome of this at the end of the day is the salvation of your souls. How do you want to describe it? We'll use Isaiah 35 in the last verse in the Old Testament reading that we did just a few moments ago. In that day, all of the sorrows and all of the sighings will flee. Will flee. They'll be gone. They'll be gone. And everlasting joy will be upon your head. <laughs> I almost said, who's the most Eeyore-like person here? <laughs> Let's not answer that. I'll be the most Eeyore-like person here. Everlasting joy shall be upon your head. That's the outcome of your faith. That's the salvation of your soul. It has been secured by Jesus. It has been given to you and to all who have loved his appearing. For Peter then, hope, living hope, is not just some dot that's out there on the horizon and you deal with present realities as best you can until you get to there. No, 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 no. For Peter, the hope of which he spoke 
is a hand that has reached down through time and now takes yours and interlocks your present life with all of its joys and with all of its sorrows and in the midst of all of those joys and all of those sorrows and all of those toils and all of those dismalities, it says, I gotcha. I'm with you now. And I'm taking you home. I'm taking you to the country, to the one where you belong. That's what hope does. It's not just out there. It's living into the present realities that we have. That, my brothers and sisters, that is strength for today and bright hope for all of our tomorrows. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see our lives like that. I know I and I know that many of us, when we are facing some kind of trial, when we're facing some kind of grief or pain, can allow that to become the only thing that we see and the only thing that we feel and the thing that overwhelms us dispositionally. Lord, help us to set our faith and our hope upon you. Strengthen us, Lord. You have implanted within us the life of Jesus Christ, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. May it grow in our lives so that our hope is in you and so that by your grace we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.